Yang. You're listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show. And who do we have on the line right now? Hello, are you there, caller? I am here. Who are you? I am still Don Pyle, and, and I feel like I have my own show on, on CITR now. Don Pyle, thank you for returning to the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show. If people weren't aware, Don Pyle was on the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show last week, talking about his punk rock slideshow, which I saw this week, and it was excellent. And again, if you're thinking, really, well, I might have heard Don Pyle before that on the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show, you did indeed, 24 years ago, in October 1990. So it was only a week gap instead of like 24 years. Happy birthday to me. <laughs> Thank you so much for bringing all sorts of great knowledge to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and other cities that you're touring, Don. Who are you again, and what did we hear, and what have you been doing? <laughs> That's a lot of questions. <laughs> can I just send you my resume? <laughs> I guess people can check that out at donpile.com. Uh, well, no, don't even look at that. I haven't updated it for two years. I, uh, I don't know how to, I don't know how to do the website anymore. And it's just been sort of this dormant thing there. It's, it's like that Spanish, you know, trawler that sunk and they just left it in the harbor for the last couple of years. It's, that's my website. Uh, but there's a site for the, uh, the book, um, um, troubleinthecameraclub.com that you can see stuff about, uh, the book and, 
one day when I have free time, I will uh, get around to uh, fixing up my own website. It's a book of fantastic punk rock photos, basically mainly taken in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. As well, Don Pyle's been in a bunch of amazing rock and roll combos. Maybe you could rile off some of those. Rile off some of those. (laughs) Well, let me see. The first band I was in was Crash Kills 5, a uh, band that lasted a couple of years from... Um, 78 to 1980, and then uh, starting in 1984, I uh, was in Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet for 11 years, and um, and I'm once again in Shadowy Men because um, we started playing again a couple of years ago. Our uh, bass player, Reed Diamond, uh, the late Reed Diamond, um, is not part of that for obvious reasons uh but our friend dallas good is playing with us in shadowy men and uh let me see uh while i was in shadowy men i was in king cobb steely and fifth column and uh after shadowy men uh reed and uh, i had a band with dallas good and beverly breckenridge that was called phonocomb and we did a couple of albums and uh Oh, gosh. Uh, so now I'm kind of in sort of a few bands. I ha- I have uh, a band called Long Branch that just did its first show a couple of weeks ago with uh, uh, Laura Pitcannon and uh, Lisa Myers and Sally Lee, who were uh, the last two were in Chicken Milk and Venus Cures All, and Darcy Good, who is in um, The Good Family. Uh, so I'm in that band. And Black Heel Marks, which is kind of, sort of my project and sort of uh, collaboration. Well, it's, it's collaborative for sure. Um, it started off as being a band with um, Bill and Kurt, uh, Kurt Kendall and um, the Big Kahuna from uh, Tacoma rock band Girl Trouble. So they're on about half of the uh, Girl Trouble or the uh, half of the Black Heel Marks album, and the rest of it is me with different friends, and then I have another um, duo, sort of expandable, contractable, uh, sort of electronic hardcore band with Dallas Good that is called The Filthy Gaze of Europe, and we have uh, just one single out, but we have more stuff recorded that's going to see the light of day sometime soon. And Don Paul, you took many a punk rock pick when you were very, very young. In fact, I think I saw some pics from when you were like four or five that you were taking. You were taking photos at four or five. Yeah, well, they weren't punk rock ones, but, I, you know, kind of. I mean, that, that one photo that I showed of my brother, you know, when, that I took when I was like four. Like, you know, he looks like, he looks like those early pictures of Lou Reed, you know, uh, sort of like the very beginning of the Velvet Underground. Uh, but yeah, you know, just like instamatic photos, like like lots and lots of kids uh, took, and adults, you know, the, the point and shoot kind of thing, not a professional camera or anything. But uh, when I was fourteen, that was when I bought a um, a thirty-five millimeter camera, like a you know an SLR, a Canon, uh, you know SLR camera, and started. Uh, Punk rock had already begun then, and I, you know, the first pictures that I have of punk rock of like you know the Ramones in 1976 are taken with my little Instamatic, and then um, then I got a good camera and then started shooting stuff like crazy in like 1977. 
And you also listened to a lot of music. In fact, you supplied some music to the Nardwari Human Serviette radio show, Don. Today, to begin the Nardwari Human Serviette radio show, we heard the government with flat tire. What can you tell the people about the government? Flat tire. Well, you t- I think it was you that told me that they uh, they actually played out here. Uh, so they're one of the very, very few bands from that Toronto scene that actually made it out here. And they were a three-piece band uh, with... Um, uh, the guitar player and the singer Andy Patterson and Robert Stewart being kind of the, the consistent ones throughout the uh, the band's career, but they were like a totally like arty band, like you know a very like self consciously like art punk band. Well, you know not even punk because you know they I remember they bristled at at being called a punk band, but you know they were playing all the same clubs and they definitely had like some of the some shared sensibilities, but, you know, they were doing stuff with TV sets and video, a lot of work with video. They um, have a couple of uh, music videos out that are kind of like sort of halfway between a music video and, uh, you know, experimental art video. Uh, but they really were like, you know, consciously connected to the art scene and uh, wanted to like, you know, not be perceived as just, as just a band. Um, so they did a couple of singles, um, Hemingway hated disco music, another great single, and then um, that 33 and a third EP, which uh, Flat Tire came from, and uh, another 12-inch record and uh, an LP. So they were actually like you know one of the kind of like most prolific bands in terms of releasing things from from that scene. I want to ask you about a band called Fleva. Do you know the band called Fleva? Fleva? Yeah, yeah, they were. Totally, like, you know, kind of, I would say, like, you know, contemporaries of, of the government. And uh, I forget who was involved in that, but it was a lot of, like, you know, the, the, the you know, kind of... It was actually Andy on bass, I heard. Yeah, Andy, yeah. I think, Andy I, Patterson I, I, of the government and also Michael Brook were in that band. Yeah, Michael Brook, who was, uh, I had a picture of him who was in the Everglades and um, Martha and the Muffins and... Uh, uh, yeah, I forget who all was in that, but I remember it was sort of like a collective kind of uh, thing. There were a couple of bands like that. That um, um, God, is it the name of the record of the band that My Name Is Schreibman album, and then the uh, Bunny and the Lakers? You know, bands, are, records that were were um, you know kind of oddities that came out of uh, short term sort of collaborations between um, people who were into punk rock or art rock and people who were visual artists and, you know, really mixing it up. And Andy Patterson, like, he's still, he's uh, he's a very prolific artist and author. He has a, a couple of crime novels out, and he writes about art quite a bit. He doesn't do music anymore, but, um, you know, he does film quite a lot, film and video. Don, you were in The Crash Kills 5, so was Reed. What about the story of Reed giving away your rare records on Halloween? <laughs> they, were, they weren't rare records at the time. I think they became rare records. Because, what are they uh, worth right now, though? What are they worth right now, just so that people can put them in the back uh, of their mind? Uh, probably about 9 bucks. You could probably get about $9 for your Crash Kills 5 record. Uh no, we had you know uh, we put out this one single and um, it didn't sell a lot. Uh, you know, I think at that time you had to press a thousand. I think that we maybe sold like five hundred. So Reed had another five hundred sitting in his uh, in his uh, you know the loft of his his uh, studio. And so one year he 
he gave all as many as he could away for Halloween, and uh, you know, kids would come to the door, and Reed would drop a seven-inch single into their bag. Uh, so they uh, we got rid. Of, he got rid of a lot of them that way, and uh, funnily enough, that uh, single got reissued by Ugly Pop many, many years later, just a couple of years ago, and sold more as a reissue than it did as the original. And we're like, wait, all you have to do is dress up as Dracula and come to the door and we'll give you one. <laughs> did Crash Kills 5 make it to Yonkers, New York? <laughs> oh, you are the Brian Lydahan of music, aren't you? <laughs> uh, yeah, we did. Uh, we, um, we stayed with Alex Koch's grandmother in Yonkers, we went down to New York. I mean, this is how, how like, kind of ridiculously, like, naive and bushy-tailed we were that we, the four of us got in a van and drove to New York with a handful of seven-inch singles so that we could go around together to clubs and try and get shows there. And we stayed at Alex's grandmother's place in Yonkers and, uh, you know, took the train into the city. We met a few people who were from Toronto or... Uh, you know, we're living down there and, you know, stayed a few nights in the city. But, um, yeah, we had a totally crazy time there. It was like, you know, it was completely a crazy time in New York. You know, it was like really wild frontier, you know, pre-gentrification New York when Manhattan was, um, uh, you know, there was a lot of dangerous parts, but it was also a lot of kind of... Uh, experimentation and really like amazing music and art and um and you know beauty too because it's such a you know it was an old city and um quite run down at that point it was like you know i forget what year it was that they were new york almost went bankrupt and uh but you know at that time you could really feel that new york didn't have a lot of money you know the streets were uh very potholed and uh there was uh, some parts of it that were pretty scary, but, you know, it was also a really exciting time to go to New York. And you guys also got to open for Protex and the Fast. Again, we're speaking here to Don Pyle from Crash, Kill 5, and many other rock and roll combos, speaking here specifically about Don's punk rock photos, but also about his bands. And Crash, Kills 5, you guys played with Protex and the Fast. Yeah, we we, uh, we played with some, you know, really good bands, and... Um, um, you know, that was like quite uh, pretty much up to uh, Gary Topp and Gary Cormier, the two promoters in Toronto. So, you know, they, of course, knew who all the bands in town were. And whenever someone was coming to town that they thought were kind of, you know, appropriate or that that they should meet, you know, they really were like curators. So if they thought like, oh, you know, these guys should meet the fast, so we're going to put them on the same bill together. And we played with a few other bands too, like Shrapnel that had... Um, Oh God! I think it was, I think it was Joey Ramone's brother was in that band. Um, um, yeah, and a few other you know weird bands. And Protex was a band that like you know we didn't even know who they were when we played with them. But the Fast were a band that we were we were fans of, and they were uh, great guys. And you know we hung out with them, and you know the bands would come to town, and they would hardly know anybody. And so we were kids in in you know I was still in high school and. The other guys were just working kind of like either non-existent or dead-end jobs, so you had a lot of free time to uh, go out and hang out with the the bands that were visiting, you know, that that you played shows with. So we uh, we had some fun with the fast. 
Don, Don Pyle, and Don Pyle is live here on CITR Radio, 604-822-2487, 604-UBC-CITR, if anybody has any questions for Don Pyle, or you can tweet me, at Nardwar, N-A-R-D-W-U-A-R. Before you came on, Don, I tweeted out two of your pics, and I was wondering if you could tell the people a little bit about the two pictures that I tweeted out, one of Joe Strummer and one of Debbie Harry. Uh, well, let me see. The Joe Strummer thing was was from um, uh, some of the years kind of get a little blurry to me. It was like 78, 79. It's uh, whenever Give Them Enough Rope came out. So that was their second album, and they were playing at the um, this place in Toronto, this Greek, it was like a Greek movie theater that never had shows. There was hardly ever shows there. Um, uh, so it was kind of like an odd place for them to, to play. Uh um so yeah their album had come out they were obviously like you know kind of at that time they were definitely like you know the biggest sort of punk band from the UK that came well you know at the time they were like second only to the Sex Pistols um so um yeah that show uh was a you know quite a lot of mayhem although the time that came after that so the the uh it was kind of like an infamous riot where they had um the Undertones, and Bo Diddley opening for them. I didn't go see that show. That was for London Calling, which I uh, I was kind of like, you know, off the clash at that point. But, man, seeing The Undertones and Bo Diddley opening, that would have been fantastic. And the audience ripped all the seats out. But the audience was much more, you know, kind of... Uh, they didn't do that at the show I saw. But um, it was, you know, packed, packed, packed at the front. And... Um, partly to kind of, like, avoid being, like, crushed and partly to get great pictures. I climbed up onto the arms, so I had my legs, like, straddling, or my feet on, you know, arms of the uh, the chairs of the theater seat. So I was, like, above the audience, kind of, like, at stage level with the, uh, the band. So I took, uh, you know, a lot of photos in kind of quick succession from that point of view. So I ended up getting some really, uh, you know, quite nice pictures of them there. Um... And the other one was uh, Deborah Harry, did you say? Yeah, it's kind of a blue shot. She's wearing some short shorts yeah, and some that, blue light. That blue shot with the short shorts, which is the photo that I have seen more men's tongues fall out of their, their mouths than than any other picture. And I have discovered how much Deborah Harry fueled many, many, almost like 95% of teenage punk boys' fantasies because... Uh, I have heard, like, from almost every guy who looks at that picture that, like, oh, my God, I had such a crush on Deborah Harry. But um, that was when they they played at the Alma Combo, and it was um, their second time in town. The, they came uh, for their first album, opening for Iggy Pop. And then uh, the second time was right, Plastic Letters had just come out, and... Um, you know, so they were, they hadn't had a, a big hit yet. Uh, and, you know, the Alma is not a huge place. I think it, you know, maybe holds like 400 people. Um, but, you know, I was right at the very front with my legs like pressed against the stage, you know, to the point where there's, um, I have a couple of pictures, like, you know, I have so many more photos that are blurry or out of focus. And I have one that is kind of like, Deborah Harry's eye and her cheek because she was like so close to me and at one point she um, 
she uh, stood on the monitor, like with one foot on the stage and one foot on the monitor, and she put her hands on my shoulder to kind of like be above the crowd. And so, you know, I was kind of like supporting her or holding up. So I was like, you know, that close. And uh, so, you know, consequently, I got a, a few nice pictures of them. And, uh, you know, I was always like right at the front, you know, partly because I was just like super fan and I wanted to see things like really up close. I didn't want to stand in the back and chat with people. I mean, lots of people went to shows and would just stand around and, you know, talk. It was a much more of a social thing. But for me, I was, um, you know, really into the music and really into getting pictures of them for, for you know, a long time. So, um, you know, I would be at the very front of, of, of most of the shows that I went to if I was, you know, into the band. Did you see the vial tones before they recorded? Do you remember them doing Screaming Fist? Oh, yeah. I mean, I saw the Violetones so many times. Like, um, I, you know, I remember them. I knew, you know, I still, I could, I knew, like, their entire set, because it kind of, like, it reached a point where their set never changed, because they just, like, weren't writing new songs. So, you know, I know all the songs that the Violetones recorded. I just heard that, um, that album, what is it called, uh, Taste of Honey, um, a couple of years ago, and somehow I thought that album was like a live record or something and so i kind of ignored it and it's all these recordings that they did back then so it was kind of shocking to hear like oh my god these are all the songs that i know and i actually have a couple of cassettes that i recorded at shows of them playing and uh so i saw them like tons and tons of times but you know the song scream and fist in their set i wouldn't say that it like stood out any more than anything else until after they recorded it and you know, part of that is because the recording is just so amazing that, uh, you know, it really kind of like became a standout song. But they had a lot of like really good songs. Um, you know, and when I say really good songs, when I listen to some of those things now, so much of that is context, you know, because I sometimes when I'm hearing something like the New York Dolls, I think like, how would this sound to to, you know, my friend's 16-year-old son, if he was hearing this for the first time and had no context for it, was just hearing this as music with no pictures of them or anything, and a lot of this stuff is kind of like, yeah, that's not a very good song, but, you know, like, like, like everything, it's about context. You know, like all music, I think, is kind of about context and how old you are when you're hearing it and, and you know, all, all kinds of other factors. But... Yeah, I saw I saw the Violetones more than any other band I've seen in my life. I mean, I saw them more than 70 times. And um, kind of like the big sort of like three bands from Toronto, the uh, Teenage Head, the Diodes, and uh, the Violetones. Those were bands that they played all the time. I mean, the Violetones would play at, you know, dumps like the Hotel Isabella that was this um, kind of flop house hotel with a... Uh, tiny bar in the basement you know it was like you know low ceilings and the bar couldn't have held more than like 40 people and you know they'd play there for two dollars on monday tuesday wednesday three nights in a row so you know lots of times i'd go three nights in a row um and yeah they were kind of like a working band but a working band that was just kind of like doing the local thing you know they weren't they weren't kind of uh reaching out kind of beyond. I mean, they went to New York, and that's kind of, you know, about it. 
Stephen Leckie always says that they went to England or that he went to England, but I don't know how much is true about that because I've I've never seen any kind of documentation of the Sex Pistols or uh, the Violetones actually going to England. How close did the Violetones come to making it? Was it turning rockabilly that killed them? <laughs> I don't think it had anything to do with rockabilly. I think the Violetones killed the Violetones. I don't think the Violetones could have ever like made it. You know, like in Stephen Leckie says now that like that he like never wanted to make it, and um, I. I don't really believe that. I think that there was like a lot of kind of like insecurity kind of like masked with uh, bravado. Um, and, you know, he's he's a, definitely sort of a powerful figure. He was, as a stage performer, as a front person, he had like super intensity, like, you know, kind of like a scary intensity, like, you know, um, you know, again, it's like con- what I say about context. When you see John Lydon now with that kind of, um, you know, wide-eyed sort of like, you know, stare from those early Sex Pistols thing, when I see it now, you know, I see power and intensity, but not like I did then, because, you know, at that time it was like, oh my God, like, just his eyes are are kind of like a performance, you know, they're they're so intense, and it's giving the band a feeling of being intense, and Stephen Lucky had that intensity too, he was... <clears throat> a uh, you know very captivating and um and unpredictable uh but um as far as like being you know making it big those guys were just like in too much chaos there was too much drinking not enough practicing too much standing around trying clothes on um and um you know eventually drugs uh so um and fear, you know, I think that they had a lot of fear, like the sex, or the, I don't know why I keep saying the sex pistols. The Violetones, I think, had a lot of potential to make things happen, because, you know, when they went down to New York, or when other bands came up here that were kind of, you know, known, you know, American bands like the uh, the Dead Boys, you know, they would see the Violetones and be blown away, you know, and so, you know, they formed friendships, alliances, and, um, Lots of people wanted things to happen for them, but uh, Stephen Leckie would quite often like undo things that were like set up for them that were really great. Things like you know taking the band's money from you know that they needed to rent a van or something, so then they couldn't go somewhere or just. I've heard so many things, and there's different things that are documented in in Liz Worth's book. Uh, treat me like dirt and it was sort of like my experience at the time that the Violetones just like kept you know screwing themselves up and a lot of that was Stephen Leckie and you know the Freddie and Chris well the whole band they all quit and you know became the secrets after after that and I think it was just they just couldn't take um you know Leckie kind of undoing anything great that was kind of building with them it was very a super self-destructive band, but, you know, that's part of what made them exciting. Some of the bands were destructive, although some bands were nice. Teenage Head, Don Pyle, lent you some pants? <laughs> Their manager, Paul Kobach, who is now a diviner. He's, like, he's one of those guys that, you know, if you, uh, if you have a property and you want to dig a well, or if you want to find a portal to another dimension, or... Um, 
locate some uh, lost spirits in your home, you can call Paul, Paul Kobach, who is uh, Teenage Head's former manager, and he'll come over with his dousing rod and find those things for you. So it was him that uh, <laughs> that loaned me the pads because, uh, uh, you know, we'd go see Teenage Head sometimes in, in Hamilton, and when they played in Hamilton, they were playing kind of like, you know, more like the revolution wasn't happening as quickly there. So, you know, that was really the time when things like dress codes started to disappear because, you know, up until that point, so many bars, uh, you know, you had, you couldn't wear jeans or, you know, you had to wear uh, just stupid things. And, you know, that continued on for a long time afterwards with people thinking like, you know, these are classier places like, you know, when uh, particularly with like disco, you know, no jeans allowed, uh, and dance clubs. Um, so at this place that they were playing in Hamilton, no jeans were allowed, which is like, you know, think of a teenage head playing, no jeans allowed. It was totally stupid and something that would never even have occurred to me when I showed up in Hamilton on the bus with my friend to go see teenage head. And um, <laughs> they wouldn't let me in. Not because I was underage, but because I I had blue jeans on. So their manager kind of uh, argued with them at the front door, and they said, no, we can't let him in. If we let him, then we have to let everybody with jeans in. So he told me to go around to the side of the building, and he went in the bathroom, and I went to the side of the building where there was an open window, and, you know, he called me through the window, and (laughs) this his head came out the window holding his pair of brown corduroys that he had been wearing and, you know, calling out to me to take my pants off and give him my pants. So because he was the manager, he, he was able to wear my jeans. So for the night, we swapped pants. <laughs> and some of that divining is actually shown in the amazing movie, The Last Pogo Jumps Again. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, so obviously you've seen that film. That film is... I think it's just amazing. Like, you know, I'm, uh, I was so moved by that film. You know, I, I hope that every city has someone who makes uh, a film as great as that about their particular place. And, you know, I don't know how that film plays for people outside of Toronto, but, um, you know, I was just like enraptured by that film because so much of it that it was describing, everything that was in it was my experience and the point of view that was, um, that was sort of, uh, you know, given um, was so much of my point of view. And, um, you know, kind of like not so surprising, Colin Brenton, who made that, he um, he was the uh, uh, the ticket guy in the booth at the Roxy Theater, this like 99-cent theater in the East End that Gary Topp, the promoter who went on to do most of these shows, uh, that he uh, ran. And that theater was like kind of like a really sort of like significant place in you know at that time it was like the only place that was kind of you know like you see stuff in like 1973 74 that is totally like you know it's it's like when punk rock happened to me it was like just a natural sort of continuation of like you know brownsville station and john waters films and um you know, the modern lovers, uh, that those were things that were, um, it was just sort of like a natural continuation. Um, but then it kind of like exploded where all of a sudden, instead of there being like, you know, 
one band or one place to play and one person, you know, kind of presenting things. All of a sudden, there were like, you know, tons of places and bands and everything. So Colin worked at the uh, the door at that place, and I remember them like, uh, you know, doing a presentation, a live presentation with Divine, you know, before she was, you know, known to kind of the general population, um, you know, for her dance records or polyester, like long before that, or early, you know, female trouble period. Um, and uh, so, you know, they'd show a lot of... Um, a lot of you know pretty eccentric films and things like Marx Brothers films. Uh, so Colin worked there, and then he, uh, when the Garys um, took over the New Yorker Theater on Young Street, he was the uh, the guy in the ticket booth there. And so he knew me from me just going to all these things, and you know we sort of you know had this like pretty casual friendship. So. Um, you know, he was seeing all these same things from the same sort of point of view as I was seeing them, except he was older. So he was, um, you know, kind of like his perceptions were, were different. And he also had some, like, you know, experience behind him to kind of, like, know, to be so, uh, to, you know, be have a different perception of just kind of like what was happening. Um, like, I remember it was him that was at the box office, the... The first couple of times the the Ramones came to town, and um, I, you know I went to the down to the uh, the theater early, and we would just like hang around, just like you know waiting to see the Ramones, or just you know to kind of absorb the the excitement in the air. You know we were just like so excited. You know do I want to sit home at my mother's house and wait until eight o'clock to go down to the show? It's like no, let's go down right after school and just hang around <laughs> the New Yorker until it's time to you know for the show and that's how i you know got to go in and see some of the sound checks and um i remember like colin coming out and saying to me like at the when the second album came out said you know he said the ramones are downstairs if you want to go meet them just go in just go downstairs you know say hi to them and so i did and you know i got their autographs the first time they came i ran into them on the street because we were hanging around outside and uh the second time you know, he said, just go downstairs and talk to them. And, you know, we were, you know, 15 years old, and they were just kind of sitting there like, what? You want to talk to us? What? And, you know, we didn't even know what to say. It was just like, you know, hi, we love you. You're great. You know, will you sign this? So, yeah, and then Colin worked the door at the Horseshoe, and he worked the door at all these places, and then, um, you know, started working in film and television, and... um one of his very earliest films, he used a bunch of Shadowy Men songs. So, um, you know, we've sort of had this loose connection for a long time. But so when he made he made that last Pogo film, which was a, um, you know, film document of the um, the last two nights that Gary Topp and Gary Cormier were booking the Horseshoe Tavern before they were booted out of there. And, you know, that was a total spontaneous thing for him. Like, you know, he decided on the afternoon of the first show, oh, I'm going to film this, and then ran home, and someone gave him a roll of film, and he had one roll of film, and, you know, he shot something really short. I remember him telling me that that um, whatever the length of that film was, like 16 minutes or something, that he shot something like 17 minutes of film, and, you know, 16 of it ended up in the, the, the movie. Uh, and you know that was the basis for him to do this uh, 
this last pogo jumps again, which is like a such a comprehensive uh, uh, document history covering tons and tons of bands that um, you know so many people have either forgotten about or or so many people don't know about you know all those like the details that like you know that just like there are in you know Vancouver scene is very very similar to Toronto's in that it was like you know super strong scene and if you were in that scene those bands were like the best bands in the world and I think like the Toronto records like some of those records you hear them afterwards and it's like oh yeah that's a really good record or that one's a great record and you know the the quality is quite variable, and sometimes it's as good as um, you know the bands were, and sometimes it isn't. But then, you know, in between those kind of releases, there's tons of other bands that came and went, or um, you know that people have completely forgotten about, like the Cads. You know, they were a band that I always loved. The Cads. All of us in Shadowy Men loved the Cads, and uh, and. I always thought that they're like, why isn't the CAD single like ever on collectors' lists? Like, Bomp is still selling that CAD single for like six dollars and fifty cents, and I think it's like one of the classics of of the Toronto scene. But, um, you know, so Colin covered the CADs in his in the last Pogo Jumps again, which to me was like, okay, Colin, like you are the master. You've you've covered everything, including the CADs. A lot of stuff there also on Mike Nightmare and the Ugly in the last Pogo Jumps game. Mike Nightmare lived in a graveyard, and I was fascinated about that. What can you say about the graveyard living of Mike Nightmare? And also, Don Paul, I was curious, in about 1986, I was out at UBC here in the library, and I saw a poster for The Wild Things. It didn't have any information. It just said The Wild Things had a guy's picture on the front, and I guess it was Mike Nightmare. I found out. I never knew that they did gigs in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. I took the poster and it's still on my wall till today. What's the connection of the wild things to Vancouver? And also, could you talk about living in the graveyard, the ugly from Toronto? <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know anything about living in the graveyard. Uh, uh, I, uh, there was something I meant to say at the, uh, at my talk the other day, that something that a friend of mine, um, had told me that um, <laughs> that he was roommates with Mike Nightmare, and he said he said he really was a nightmare to live with. He said I came home one day, and him and his girlfriend were screwing on the front lawn in in the daylight. <laughs> uh, so I don't know the story about him him living in the graveyard. Although it's a really good one, <laughs> uh, I want to hear it. Uh, but the Wild Things were this band that he had after the Ugly, because uh, Sam and Tony, the uh, bass player and uh, drummer from uh, the Ugly, quit uh, the Ugly to join the Vile Tones. So you know all, all the Vile Tones, the original Vile Tones, uh, um, you know, quit for a while. Sam, who Sam uh, for our who still does records is Screamin' Sam and uh, plays in a band called The Screwed and uh, Rattlesnake Orchestra. Um, you know, still playing all the time in Toronto and, you know, completely talented, sweet guy. Um, Sam had quit the Ugly and joined the Vile Tones, so they were a five-piece for a very, very brief period. And 
And then he got Tony to also quit. And so the Vialtones kind of, um, uh, you know, collapsed. And then the Ugly, you know, became... Um, um, sorry, I'm getting my, uh, my stories mixed up. Anyway, they left. They they quit the uh, the Ugly and joined the Vialtones. Um so uh, Mike carried on with a new version of the Ugly for a while, and uh, eventually got into heroin. And um, the drugs, like so many people from kind of like, you know, it's unfortunate because like the heaviest stuff, the hardest stuff, like I was into like the spectrum. Like I liked the wimpiest, like bounciest, artiest, faggiest bands. You know, I was really into, you know, the... The kind of like the real like art school like you know clever clever bands but i was also into like you know complete like chaos and intensity hard punk rock bands but all the hardest bands all got into heroin and um that sort of became an issue in the ugly falling apart and so he started this new band called the wild things with basically his other musician pals who he was doing heroin with. And it was kind of a really silly thing because they would just like go out on the town together. They had matching leather jackets with these like, um, you know, embroidered patches on the back, like a bike gang uh, with some, I don't know, like an eagle or something in, you know, um, um, you know, gothic type type on the back, wild things. And they would go out and just, like, stand around and try and look like a band. It was kind of like a crime sort of look, like the band Crime from San Francisco. But, you know, just kind of long after the fact and just kind of a little silly looking. So they they were just, like, not a great band. They were, you know, more of a hard rock band and kind of like, you know, the Alice Cooper sort of MC5 vein. Um and um, I don't know who of the band came out here with him, but, um, you know, I heard that he came out here because there was easier access to drugs. And, uh, you know, that's always the story I've heard. I don't know how much of that's true. But um, so he came out here and had the ugly things here for a while and um, was in and out of jail for various reasons, uh, primarily drugs, and then, um, you know, died from some kind of misfortune related to drugs is, uh, uh, in uh, after doing a kind of lengthier stint in jail out here in Vancouver. So, you know, once people kind of like left town, it was pretty, you know, there was not a lot of ways to kind of like gather information about, about someone. You know, occasionally like someone would come out to Vancouver and see Mike Nightmare out here and come back and say, hey, I saw I saw Mike, I mean, I actually did hear this, you know, friends saying, like, I saw him on the street, and, you know, he was a mess. He was so fucked up, he couldn't uh, couldn't even speak. He was, like, just look, looking at me with this, like, you know, kind of terrified look. So they, the ugly things were, were kind of bad news, you know. It was like it was a sad sort of band that was based on, you know, their drug-taking rather than, than and, and looking great rather than, you know, their songs. 
And we're speaking here to Don Pyle, all about his punk rock picks from the Toronto area and beyond as well. I was going to ask you about that a bit later. Any picks taken not in Toronto? But I was curious right now about the Dead Boys. Just tweeted out another pick, Don, and it's of Stiv Baders. And I guess I was curious about the Dead Boys. It's got Stiv and it's the Stiv one with the knife. And I guess I was curious, what did the Dead Boys think of where they were playing the Crash and Burn? Did they have ambitions to play like a big club? Did they want to play a club that had a carpet? (laughs) They didn't want to play a club with a carpet. They brought their own carpet. (laughs) Uh, Well, the Dead Boys, you know, it was funny because I... uh, um, the first time they played in Toronto, they opened for um, the Ramones. It was the second time the Ramones came, and um, and um, very soon after that, they came and did their own headlining show at the New Yorker, and then um, again at the Crash and Burn. So in '77, they came like three times in, you know, probably a stretch of like six months, and. Uh, so they were spending so much time up here that, you know, they were making lots of friends. Like, um, you know, some of them kind of went on for a long time afterwards. Like, you know, Steve Bader's solo records, uh, David Quinton, who is the drummer on, in um, the mods, um, you know, he played on uh, Steve's solo records and was his band for a long time. And Steve ended up marrying... Um, I think it's Cynthia Ross from the B-Girls. You know, she moved down to New York. And uh, so, you know, there was a real, like, you know, kind of connection here. They had a lot of friends. The Vile Tones and the, the Dead Boys were really good friends. They were playing here a lot. And, you know, so you'd go to a party and you'd see the Dead Boys there. And um, they were just kind of like regular sort of like laughy, you know, guys, fun guys. Because on stage they were like, you know, intense, intense. And I uh, just saw part of, like, an interview from uh, some cable access show with um, um, uh, Sid Vicious and Stiv Baders that someone put up on YouTube. Uh, and um, Nancy Spungen's there with them, and Cynthia Ross, Stiv's then-girlfriend, is are, are sitting with them. And they're both, like, you know, being, like, you know, Sid's picking his nose, and, and uh, Stiv is, like, you know, chewing gum with his mouth open and sneering and totally like, you know, doing kind of like punk acting. And after like seeing the dead boys the very first time after they finished their set, they came out in the lobby and they were like standing there talking to people. And I remember like, you know, talking to them and getting them to sign my form that they were giving out for their fan club. Uh, And like how, friendly they were and just kind of like normal and you know at that age you know people like you think about someone like alice cooper who i was really into like at that time you know when i was a kid you know i believed that alice cooper was really like who he was on stage and you know kind of before you're 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 <laughs> before you're when you're naive enough to believe that that everybody is kind of like the persona that they put on that, you know, I saw them on stage and I thought, Holy shit, these guys are intense. Like, you know, and they're scary guys. And so, uh, it was funny to me. And, you know, it's like one of those many experiences that you have along the way that help you sort of like decode how, how images are constructed and how people put together their, their persona or, you know, they're one thing for an audience and they're a different thing when they're, you know, 
amongst friends. Um, so yeah, they played here lots and lots and lots. Or by here, I mean Toronto. And uh, but you know, things obviously never took off for them in as big a way as uh, I think they hoped for. And you know, their second album was not nearly as good as their first one. But that carpet that you referred to, where I showed that picture, uh, when they played the Crash and Burn. Um, and I don't know if it was like this at, at the other places, but it was just like this one particular picture that I had where I was really struck by it. Like, you know, what is that? Why is there that piece of shag carpeting in the center at the front of the stage? And I realized that it had been... And then I, I just had this like memory flash of Stiv actually coming out and putting it on the floor. And it was there because he would like throw himself to the ground on his knees or on his stomach and, you know, he would do things to hurt himself. Like, you know, it was, I remember seeing him, like, throw himself onto the monitor, onto his stomach that looked like that would have broken ribs or that would have, like, knocked the wind out of you. But he had this, he brought this little pad of carpet so that when he threw himself to the ground, he wouldn't hurt himself as much. I thought that was, like, so cute for how, how like, you know, I'm crazy, I'm out of control. But, you know, he had this nice little, safety net. <laughs> Last week on the Nardwarta Human Serviette radio show, you were on Don Pyle talking about your punk rock picks and Greg Diamond from Toronto phoned in. It was incredible. Props out to Greg. And Greg mentioned the New Rose shop. The New Rose shop, because I think you had mentioned the New Rose shop. What can yeah. you tell the people about the New Rose shop and also other places to eat and buy records and <laughs> how basically leather equals tattoos? <laughs> Jesus, that's an essay there. <laughs> Wind me up. Uh, well, New Rose, like, I think probably like a lot of places, like, you know, where I think kind of the, the people who were going to these things that sort of like were the beginning of punk rock, one of the other places that, that people like really kind of like where you would see other people, like if you saw someone walking down the street, it's funny, Chris Stein just did a photo book. And um, there's a, uh, a photo in there of um, Debbie Harry and I think it's Clem Burke walking down, like, you know, Broadway or some street in New York, and you can see all these heads turning and looking at them because they are dressed in, like, just, like, totally, like, fantastic, like, 1960s, 1950s clothes, you know, drainpipe pants, you know, beautiful shirts, nice, you know, they they have a style that's, like, super put together, but it's like kind of like the best of 50s and 60s clothing. And that was what all the thrift stores had. It was like full of 50s and 60s stuff. So, you know, this kind of period where a lot of people were connecting because of just like you could spot each other easily. It's like, oh, my God, that guy has straight pants. Like, so you just go over. I, like, I remember people doing that to me, and I did to other people. Or you would see each other in... In uh, there was a short store called like Flying Down to Rio that was a used clothing store, and you know you could go and buy, you know, 1950s Levi's straight leg pants for like three dollars, and not a lot of people were buying them, and even things like a white dress shirt, like to wear something like that. You know, it's, when I saw Patty Smith on horses wearing the white dress shirt, I went out and bought a white dress shirt, <laughs> and so to wear a white dress shirt when you know most kids were you know, dressed in kind of like rocker clothes. It made you kind of conspicuous in a way to 
other people who were also listening to that Patti Smith record because, you know, who else was wearing a white dress shirt and had short hair or peg leg jeans? So, um, um, you know, the the used clothing stores were the first um, couple places that I think were kind of the uh, um, sort of, uh, um, you know, home base or kind of like a uh, first sort of like uh, steps of, of the sensibility of, of that scene. But then also um, Art Metropole. Art Metropole was, uh, uh, well, and still is. Art Metropole is still in business. They've moved a number of times, but they're still in business. And it started off, uh, it was started by Art, um, General Idea, the three members of General Idea, as kind of like a workspace and kind of like a hangout social space and an outlet for um, artists to sell, like multiples, books, art books, uh, small like pieces of art. But then it was also an archive as well. So they were like gathering all of this, um, you know, ephemera related to art, visual arts in Toronto and um, and other places. You know, there was a real connection to New York. You know, like they did that file magazine that was like you know take off of life magazine and you know real reverence for like the warhol scene and a lot of emulation of the warhol scene but art metropole was was a pretty cool place but i remember like going into it quite often and looking at things but finding it kind of confusing like you know how can there be a store this big here and they're not selling anything or there's only like you know 20 small things for sale so the idea of like you know a, a space that would show art but also sell some things was you know kind of confusing to me. Um, but you know in that confusion it makes you think about it like you know why is that or what is that thing? And so you know it was kind of like my love of David Bowie kind of uh, you know opening me up to other concepts of art. Gen- um, art Metropole was another one of those places. Um, and they were the very first place in town to have uh, punk records. And they had, like, you know, this little box on the counter at the front of the store um, with, you know, um, maybe like two inches deep of seven-inch singles. And um, it was like, like, I remember a time when it's like, you could go into a store, and, like well, you could go into Art Metropole, and every sing- they would have every single punk record that was out because there were only a few. So at that time, I remember, like you know, there wasn't even a Toronto record out, or there would be like um, there's a couple of artists that kind of like predated punk that were sort of like you know trying to kind of like get in this sort of sensibility, like Brutus, like. You know, oddly enough, like you look back on, or or um, uh, what are those other guys? Um, Gatto, like you know, bands that were just sort of like sort of dumb rock, but you know, there was something about them. They had a curiosity about them too, where they kind of wanted to, you know, maybe transcend their sort of dumb bar scene. But you know, the sensibility wasn't quite fully formed there, or was only the sensibility of one person in the band rather than, you know, a unified kind of thing. So, um, yeah, our Metropole had singles and then, um, you know, some of the stores that were dealing in like, um, import records, there was a great, great record store in Toronto called records on wheels, which, uh, you know, was around for a long time after that. But at that time it was actually in an old streetcar across from, 
from, you know, what is now the Eaton Center. It was before the Eaton Center, and, you know, it was like a parking lot and a decommissioned streetcar sitting there full of records. Um, so, uh, you know, I remember them having, you know, the very first punk records as well and another place, Round Records, that, um, like, I actually, never mind the bollocks, I was there when they were unpacking the box and the woman took, never mind the bollocks, out a British import of it, the... Uh, that kind of lurid green one. Before there was a seven-inch single in it, a bonus thing. They hadn't, they hadn't even recorded submission yet, um, and like taking it from her hand and buying it right there. But uh, New Rose, back to your question, was a store that Freddie Pompey from the Vile Tones and his partner Margarita, his sort of like you know common law wife, um, they opened this store that was basically a hangout spot for the Vile Tones, a place for them to hang out in the daytime and drink beer and lots of people would just like stop in and they would give people beer some people they would sell beer to um but it was like a you know a hangout um there's a film that uh suzanne naughton um made called an afternoon at uh, new rose with the vile tones that is exactly that and it's really really interesting to see that film because you know you see the you see all of New Rose. It's a tiny, tiny shop, and you know it's just covered in uh, you know posters and stuff. And um, I saw that film recently because I, I curated a program of films um, at uh, the the library in uh, Toronto, and it was you know for Pride. So I was showing some queer things, some some punk things, and for me, some of the things that kind of like you know had similar sensibility but were um you know kind of like connecting different sensibilities that that i was into where i was putting the dots together about different things so i showed uh a film by uh martin sarandigi who is you know in limprist and los crudos this documentary that he made about latino hardcore and um and I showed Suzanne Naughton's film of Afternoon at New Rose with the Vile Tones. And the two films side by side were so, like, startlingly opposite. Because for so long I've seen Suzanne's film, and, you know, as you see Stephen Leckie spending, like, you know, a long time in the film, posing in front of a mirror, trying clothes on, you know, hamming for the camera and stuff. And then you see that next to Martine's film, which is, like, you know people in South America putting on shows underneath a tarpaulin and, you know, being super politically active and, um, you know, incredible political content that, you know, they're talking about, like, experiences like, you know, being beaten up by border guards and uh, and all that. So it's like, you know, there's like just a content that is, like, you know, real and intense and punk rock and... Um, but, you know, real, like, uh, you know, people's music. And then, then this vile tones next to it, which is just like, oh, my God, this is, like, so much about narcissism. Uh, so I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of rambling on off topic there, but um, it was a place to hang out and try on clothes and uh, drink beer that the, uh, the vile tones ran. And, you know, it was a place that I went to quite often. I was making T-shirts for them. And, you know, they had some records as well. So, um, um, yeah, it was a, a kind of a place to go, and it was there. You know, I think I said last week that I 
ended up getting connected to Steve Koch and Alex Koch and Reed Diamond and Brian Connolly, who I you know was in Crash Kills Five and Shadowy Men with. So, um, and as far as like you know, you said places to eat. There were a couple places to eat that were uh, that were like quite pivotal, and one of them was this place called the Peter Pan, this restaurant on Queen Street that. Um, I forget who opened it. Uh, it was someone from the dishes, and it has just closed down. And it was like you know very much an institution, and it was on the west side of Queen Street West, in the part that is like you know now kind of like long established as being you know the arts, music, kind of fashion sort of like you know center area of Toronto. But you know it's long past you know any kind of like you know now it's like Le Chateau and stuff. Um, and lush stores um, in the Gap. But um, at that time, they opened up this restaurant, and so there was there and then the bar, the Beverly Tavern, that were, like, you know, close to the art college, so that's where kind of, like, a lot of, you know, the kind of the artier sort of scene was was sort of centered around and, you know, very much a social scene. Um, so... Yeah, you know, all all kinds of places. I mean, I could go on and on because there's so many places. Like, there was a hot dog stand that I, you know, was like kind of that ended up being the Rivoli, and uh, or you know, I think it was next door to the Rivoli. But um, I mean, there weren't that many places. When I say there was a lot of places, there really weren't because, like, you know, when there were no punk records, it was like, you know, you had the places that sold import records. And import was sort of the, the blanket term for like esoteric or underground things. So you'd go there to buy a, you know, a Kevin Ayers record or a Brian Eno album. But those were the same stores that you know later were like you know selling, uh, you know, punk rock records. Don Pyle, of Don Pyle Toronto Punk Picks fame and also of Nardwuar to Human Serviette Radio Show fame. I.e., you're on another week. Thank you. And before that, originally on a Nardwuar to Human Serviette Radio Show. 24 years ago, October 1990, how many Toronto punk bands had British, UK members or singers? Like I was saying, like the Battered Wives, the Demics, the Diodes, Platinum Blonde, whose first 7-inch really was punk. All of them had like <laughs> British, UK people. Were there more? What was going on with that? Well, I think the singer from the Diodes was actually from Boston. I seem to recall that he was from Boston. But, you know, it's it's... I think it's kind of natural. I mean, you know, Canada is a colony, and for so long, um, you know, at that time, Canada was a very, very white place. It was very, very British, um, and you know, you would. It was not unusual for there to be, you know, people sort of, um, you know, that you knew that were were from England because uh, it was still that was the country that Canada had the strongest connection to. You know, I I imagine it was the same out here in the West, but in Toronto, you know, for sure, you know, like that's kind of like what my, my you know, where my great-grandparents came from. And, uh, but, um, you know, even uh, like the, so many uh, British bands, like, you know, lots of British bands would come over and they would... Um, come over for a tour of North America and that would be like Toronto and New York. And um, sometimes they only had records out in Canada and not in the States because they were a colony and there was like some kind of like reciprocal deal with uh, 
the record companies where they could put records out in Canada, but they had to have a separate deal for the U.S. So, you know, you would see that not so commonly, but, you know, it, it certainly happened. And, you know, lots of people came over and had their first success. You know, some of the bands like Elvis Costello and, uh, you know, lots of bands that we think of as, you know, being kind of the, you know, the sort of best of that crop, they're, a lot of their first success was in Canada, their first international success. How yeah. easy was it for bands to get across the border, like the Dead Boys getting across the border? The Misfits, it was like seeing the Misfits, the Screamers. Like, how easy was it to get across the border for those bands? And what was it like seeing the Screamers? And did you see the Misfits? Uh, I never saw the Misfits. Um, but uh, I remember that they did play at that place, the Shark Theater, that um, the... Um, um, you know, that the Skulls had played at and the Diodes played and, you know, lots of other bands. Uh, so I remember, you know, the poster for them, and I didn't go see them because I didn't know them. I, uh, um, I, you know, couldn't go see everything. But uh, I had no idea what the border was like at that time because, you know, that was something that I didn't even probably think about, you know, like whether, how how is that band getting in here? Like I probably didn't even know that, you, you know, things like work permits... You know, what little I know was that I remember lots of people would just, like, make up stories or say we're just going to play a party. Uh, that is, like, one thing that I heard. People would say, oh, yeah, just tell them you're going to play a party or that you're going to record. Uh, and, you know, it's very unlike now when, you know, you have to have, um, you know, permits like crazy. But the Screamers were a band that I did see, and um, they were definitely like, you know, a really kind of shocking and exciting band for me. There's certain bands that I saw that uh, were real, like, you know, kind of like blew my mind bands. Like, uh, one of them was like Gang of Four, and that was when Crash Girls 5 was was going. Gang of Four had had their gear stopped at the border. They So they, I don't know if they were coming from the UK or if they were coming from the States, but um, Gary Topp, the promoter, phoned me and asked if, if uh, this band from England could borrow some stuff. And again, you know, they didn't have an album. They had a couple of singles out. Uh, and it was not uncommon for a band to come over here with only, you know, singles. Um, so uh, Brian and I, you know, he, so we loaned them some stuff, and so he put us on the guest list. And Brian and I went to the show, and, like, our jaws just, like, you know, dropped. We were just like, oh, my God, this is, like... You know, seeing Gang of Four for the first time without having heard their music, it was shocking, you know, really, just super exciting. And it was that way for me seeing the Screamers. I was really, really into the California scene, and, um, you know, some of the bands had records out already, bands like, you know, the Weirdos and the Dills and the Avengers. So, you know, I had all those singles and was buying, like, all the Danger House records and anything that that I'd heard about that, like, looked potentially interesting from California I was buying. And it was really hard to get stuff then. You know, you had to really make an effort to acquire those records. They weren't, like, in stores, you know. They weren't... Those records weren't in record stores yet. Um, so the Screamers obviously didn't have any records, but I'd seen pictures of them, and I thought their singer looked like, you know, he had that same kind of, like, captivating sort of, like, Thing that um, that Stephen Leckie and I think uh, John Lydon had, where it was like you know it was kind of like horrifying and like just like completely like captivating and sort of scary and intense. So uh, my friend Steve Koch and I went and saw the Screamers, and I was like totally blown away for a number of reasons. Um, um, 
a big one was that it was all keyboards, all like, you know, synthesizer and organ. I mean, they're thought of as being a synth band, but it was actually like one synthesizer, drums, and an organ, just like a regular old organ through a distortion pedal. But so like, you know, even the idea that a band could play a synthesizer and make that kind of music was, um, you know, just like something that had never occurred to me. And, you know, I loved synthesizers, you know, there was already, you know, Brian Eno had records out and, you know, lots of people had synthesizers on records, the Beatles and everything, you know, so synthesizers weren't an unusual sound. I mean, they were still super rare because they were so expensive, but the sound was like, you know, really exciting to me. So in that context, it was, um, um, uh, you know, quite exciting. But another thing about that show that was really amazing was that they uh, do this song, Punish or Be Damned, uh, that they left the stage. And um, they just had these, like, oscillators going. So there's a part where the song kind of, like, it's, like, pulsing, and these oscillators are going, and the band left the stage, and the song kept playing, which, like, now, that just seems like, well, what's the big deal about that? That's nothing. But at that time... Uh, yeah, it was just, like outrageous. I remember being like, like that taking my breath away. Like, oh my god, the band isn't even on stage and they're playing still. That's like the coolest thing ever. Uh, so that was, uh, and they just like were completely exciting, wonderful live band. They were really great. And so we went and talked to them after, after their show, and um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, became friendly with them. And I actually, you know, met. Tomato to plenty again years later in like Miami and uh, you know kind of you know we both remembered you know meeting at that time and and I was also at that time you know they're called the Screamers so in retrospect it's so obvious but at the time I didn't even think this but when I met them they were just like so obviously gay and. Um, that was like really exciting to me too because they were just like if you were a gay band that meant that you were a crappy band like there was like almost there, you know I, I couldn't even like really think about any like sort of or can't really think about any you know really like gay bands I mean there were but it was like the dishes or um, you know a lot of the OC band, OCA bands the Ontario College of Art bands had a lot of gay members uh, but those all of the gay bands were like very bouncy, very like arty, witty, and it was like, and um, more kind of like you know the fashion was sort of more sort of new wave than than um, than heavy, you know. So the, the screamers uh, that was kind of like mind opening too. Like oh my god, they can be there can be like gays can make music that I like and that's. Uh, that's intense. So, you know, as a closeted gay boy, to me, that was like really super inspirational. And you documented it too. Amazing pick of the Screamers. You documented all these bands all these years ago. And in like 25 years later, you returned to Vaseline, the scene of the crime, to yeah. meet up with some runaways. Explain that, please. <laughs> Meeting people that you photographed before and them reacting to your photos. Yeah, Cherie. I got to play with Cherie, you know, many, many years later. Um, uh, Will Monroe, the late uh, artist and promoter in Toronto who put on these Vaseline parties, you know, we became friends. Like, you know, I met him and he, he started doing Vaseline and, you know, I DJed a Vaseline and, um, you know, it was a completely, like, 
revolutionary party in Toronto. It brought together all of these, you know, things were really super fractured, and so there were all these, like, you know, freaks in all these different kinds of areas of, uh, of culture, you know, art and dance music and experimental film and, and punk and all that. And Will Monroe was the person who really brought all those, thing, all those people together. The Vaseline thing was just, like, amazing. You know, I can't say enough about how transformative that was uh, with the city and I think a lot of other places, you know, as a result. And, um, uh, you know, we were talking about uh, uh, he would do, like, really, like, special shows for Pride and, you know, bring someone in from, like, far away, like, you know, Jane County or Nina Hagen, ESG, um, and so we were talking about Cherie Curry, and I had just been speaking with my friend Glenn Mead Moore, the musician, who's a chauffeur, and he said, oh my God, I just, like, he had told me, like, you know, I know you're a big Runaways fan, and I just drove Cherie and her husband, and my friend, uh, you know, is friends with them, and, you know, I had just had this, like, weird coincidental thing where someone told me that they had a connection to Cherie, and Will and I were talking about Vaseline, and I said to him, you know, I know how to get a Cherie, get a hold of Cherie Curry. If you want to bring her, I'll put a band together. So um, <laughs> he did it, and I, uh, I, you know, put a band together with a few different friends who I knew were all big Runaways fans who knew the songs inside out, and um, you know, we rehearsed. <laughs> like crazy because we wanted to be really good and then Cherie came up and we had one rehearsal with her and it was like I got goosebumps like Cherie comes in and sings with us and it's like oh my god we sound like the Runaways so it was a real kind of like you know exciting kind of like time shift mental like shift like um, you know just like something you could never like you know i've never think like that one day i will be on stage with sheree playing runaway songs um but you know it happened and it was uh it was quite amazing and um so she's not in any of the photos that i had but i had seen her with them and i told her that uh you know this this place that we were playing at i said you know i saw you on this stage here in 1976 and i remember after the show seeing you being carried down the stairs by by the the bouncers. And she's like, oh, my God, I don't remember that. And I said, yeah. She said, I don't remember playing here. I said, yeah, we, you played here, and I don't know, like, if you were sick or if you were drunk or, or what. And, it's, you know, of course, she just laughed. But, um, yeah, so I saw her hard to carry down the stairs. Have you been able to show your photos out to people that you have photographed back in the day? Did you bump into people? Don't you love that expression, back in the day? Sorry about <laughs> yeah. that. Did you have bumped into over the years? They're like, hey, you're that 14-year-old guy that was taking punk pics. Well, um, you know, some people know me from them and then and some don't. And, you know, kind of like years later, it's kind of like, you know, the things sort of all level out. And it's like, oh, if you were there in 1977, you know, it doesn't that's kind of the same as being there in 1980, you know, in, in retrospect. And those years are kind of meaningless. But, you know, this whole, um, 
you know, I've had contact from different people who have seen my photographs and, like, asked me for more copies and complimented me on the pictures, you know, people from the fast. And, uh, um, oh, God, I can't remember who else. You know, the Dead Boys, uh, Cheetah Chrome, uh, contacted me. But, uh, you know, with particularly with a lot of local people and pictures that they hadn't ever seen, and because I hadn't even seen them, like Sam Ferrara from The Ugly, when I first did a photo exhibit of these photos at this bar, the Beaver, which Will Monroe, the guy who did Vaseline, ran with uh, with another guy. Um, so I showed the photos there, and uh, when we had the opening party, Sam came in, and his picture was kind of like the first one you saw, and when he saw this picture of himself which is in the book, he's wearing a homemade shirt that says disorder across it, written in like paint, like a, a paintbrush. Uh, he started crying. Uh, he was like, so like, you know, I, you know I, I can't tell you exactly what, what was, you know, what he was feeling, but it was moving for me too. And like, you know, he's like, you know, he's like th- thanking me for putting his photograph in this show. And like, oh my God, you know, thank you. You were, you know, you you were one of the people that made this thing happen, you know? Um, How about, Don, for particularly your photos that you took, did you take any photos out of Canada? Like, did you take any photos out of Canada? And where was the earliest place a pic of yours was was published? um, uh, Let me see. Well, pretty much everything in the vo- in the book. I think almost. No, I don't think there's anything that was taken outside of the country. Um, when I showed uh, when I've shown some photos recently, you know, I have a couple of newer pictures that I show. Just you know, because it's it's nice to you know see some new things too. Like you know, I have a photo of uh, <laughs> I was going to say Martine Sarandigi from Limprist as well, but that was taken in Toronto. Uh, Ron Mail from Sparks that was taken in London, England. Um, but, you know, there's, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I've got lots of pictures of bands that I saw internationally, like, you know, the Circle Church in, in Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but, you know, none of those are in the book. Um, and, you know, I still drag my camera around with me, you know, all the time, mostly. Like right now I'm traveling with a, lot of photo related stuff so i didn't have room to carry a camera bag too but um you know i generally travel with my camera so i end up with pictures of of you know lots of things that i that i see but um yeah internationally i can't really recall and the um as far as like the first thing that i had published it wasn't until like you know many years later because people didn't even know that i had these pictures um you know, early on, like at the time, a few different bands used, um, you know, my photos on their flyers and whatnot. But the first thing that I recall having published was in an academic journal in Australia. And the guy who was had written this essay, which made some references to punk rock, um, was someone who was from Toronto and who we had known each other um, uh, you know, and knew each other at the time of uh, 
of the very first Ramon show. So he knew that I had photographs. He remembered me taking pictures of the first Ramon show and contacted me about the Ramon's picture and asked to see a few other things. So it was probably around like 1985 or something. It was an Australian academic journal, which, uh, you know, I thought was like super neat that it was like not a, uh, that was in Australia and that it was like an academic paper, that it was so like kind of left field from, you know, what you would expect. Uh, the thing to be, but I've had a lot of photos published, you know, all over the place since, you know, the, the you know, the Post, the Globe Mail, and local papers, uh, uh, you know, the Now, and and the Toronto Star, and Spin Magazine, and um, the cover of, of a few different books, you know, of course, my, my photos on my book, and, uh, and the cover of... Uh, uh, Liz Worst's book, Treat Me Like Dirt, is a photograph that I took, and uh, Jeff Pavier has a book, uh, Gods of the Hammer, about Teenage Head, that uh, features my photo on the cover, and, uh, and uh, you know, several of them inside. Um, there's photos of mine in The Last Pogo Jumps Again, and um, um, there's a, a a second edition of uh, the book, uh, 1978, by Daniel Jones, in which uh, there are two characters who are sisters who go to the Horseshoe Tavern, and they use a photograph that I took of these two women, Roger and Vera, who really were sisters in front of the Horseshoe Tavern. So, you know, kind of a literal, like I just had a literal kind of uh, photograph of, uh, you know, some of the things that were described in this book. So, um, you know, they had seen my, my photograph of the two of them, and, that ended up on a book cover as well. So, you know, they've gotten around. It's 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 pretty neat, you know, and um, it's interesting the places that I uh, hear about things. You know, of course, like, you know, Japan is known for being, you know, really massively obsessed with North American culture. And outside of uh, North America, it's like the place where I've had, like, the most contact from people about my photos and, you know, wanting wanting photographs or or, or books. Don, it's happened again. We're out of time, and I still actually have a few more questions <laughs> for you. The negotiations for another interview, Don. When are you available? <laughs> are you around next Friday? Like you're somewhere? Where are you? Are um, would you be free next Friday near a computer, or would it be better no, to computer you Friday, when you get back I'm, to Toronto? No, I'm. I'm I'm going to be somewhere else on Friday. I have a full day next Friday. Can't work then. Damn, the streak is over. <laughs> we were doing so well, too. The next two Fridays, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm occupied. And then the Friday after that, I'll be in Calgary. I'll be doing the uh, photo exhibit and um, talk in, in Calgary at the uh, Night Owl. And, uh, you know, two-night thing, similar-ish to the Vancouver thing, but... Um, Two nights, the first night of me doing photos and talks, and the second night, you know, the photos will still be up, and uh, Fist City and the Von Zippers are going to play. And if people want more information on you and your photos, Don Pyle, where should they go? Troubleinthecameraclub.com. Don, thank you so much for phoning into the Nardware to Human Serviette radio show for the second week in a row and for this, like, this is the second time, third time now, I guess, that I've, no, well, one, two, three. Wow, we're at the third time I spoke to you. So October 1990, all the way twice here in September. 
That's crazy. 2014. <laughs> and maybe we'll do some more negotiations about maybe you coming on an Ardwar to Human Serviette radio show when you're back in Toronto, if that's cool. Maybe we can hook up again. That would be great. If that's okay with you. Yeah, let's do it. Just because I still have some more questions. I guess I shouldn't have waited like 24 years <laughs> to interview you again. I've sort of ruined everything by having all these questions. I'm terribly sorry, but it would be great to be able to finish this. So I guess I will contact you in the future. Hopefully, well, hopefully not in 24 years. Oh, there's so many people. There's so many interesting people to talk to. I would yeah, like to finish it, though. The amazing, amazing stuff that I've just thought that it would be amazing to ask, especially about rare Toronto punk rock. Didn't even get to rare Toronto punk rock. The obscurities, the collector scum stuff. That's what we want to hear about. Right now, going to end, though, Don, with the CADs. You mentioned before, anything quick you want to say about the CADs. We're going to end right now with the CADs over my dead body. <laughs> well, this is from their, their, uh, their one and only uh, seven-inch single, Do the Crab Walk, uh, a four-song single. And they were a band that totally came out of, like, Ontario College of Art. And... Um, you know, their singer was this character, Bag Asteroid, that, you know, another band that is kind of like completely forgotten about that certainly influenced style uh, in in the kind of like the artier scene was the band Deaf School. And, uh, you know, them they were sort of, you know, they had some Roxy Music-ish things about them, but... Um, I always thought the singer of the Cads reminded me a lot of uh, the singer of, of Deaf School, the uh, whatever the male singer was. But um, you know, an art school band that wrote you know kind of songs about getting crabs and 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 banisters that are dirty and uh, you know kind of clever things and. Um, um, John Corvette, who was in the very first lineup of the Diodes, was in that band. And, um, you know, people who've gone on to have, like, you know, successful art careers uh, came from that band, uh, Chris Terry. Um, so, um, yeah, I don't know kind of like a whole lot more to say about them, other than they they were like a really good band. Actually, I do know something else, that when Reed and Brian uh, first moved to Toronto, you know, they were kind of lured to Toronto from Calgary, Reed Brian uh, from Shadow, you know, Shadowy Man, Crash Kills Five, Reed Diamond, and Brian Connolly. Um, the first night that they were there, we went out to the Beverly Tavern, which is the bar right around the corner from the Ontario College of Art. It was like a Tuesday night, and they arrived here thinking, like, every night there's going to be some great punk rock show. And we went to the Beverly to see the CADs, and Reed, like, turned and looked at me, and it's like, is this it? Like, this is what's happening? This is, like, all that's happening? Like, yes, Reed, it's, it's Tuesday night. I remember he, he hated the CADs, and it was like, I saw his, like, punk rock fantasy dream, like, collapse before my eyes as we watched the CADs. <laughs> and you can still get their 7-inch at Bob Mailer, do you Yeah, Bob, Bob still has it. I just bought two of them for, for no reason other than, like, I love the single, and it's like, oh, my God, I have to have these in case I... In case mine gets broken or something. All right. Well, thanks so much for phoning in to the Nerdware to Human Serviette radio show. Well, Don thanks Powell. for having me again. It was, it was, it was, I was going to say it was good to talk to you, but you didn't even get to talk. You just 
The listeners get to learn. That's good for the listeners. They're very happy. The listeners are very, very happy that I didn't say much. And that you did all the talking and taught them a lot about Toronto Punk. And we look forward to part three in upcoming weeks of Nerdware the Human Serviette versus Don Pyle. So anything else you want to add to the people out there at all, Don Pyle, about punk rock photography? Um, no, but I will say do-do-do-do-do-do. Uh, Wait, no. I just did your part. Right, exactly. Do do the loot do. Do do. I walked up to you and asked you if you wanted to dance. <laughs> I knew you by your green eyes and your red pants. You said no. Why don't you blow? Why don't you get out of my life? The one look like my damn. Capital One Just for Laughs Comedy Tour returns with a stellar lineup of headliners, starring stand-up writer and person Dimitri Martin. I'm standing right behind you. Funny as Hell host John Doerr, Canadian Comedy Award winner Levi McDougal, and podcast superstar Todd Glass. The Capital One Just for Laughs Comedy Tour at the Orpheum on November 14th. 